This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, where Dan Spader of Sun Life led a track called Transforming the Culture of Youth Ministry. Here's today's track session from Sun Life. So my name is, is Doug Holliday uh, from Orlando, Florida. Uh, been connected to Sun Life Ministries now for 30 years. So I graduated from Bible college and started uh, youth ministry. And like most Bible college graduates, I thought I knew what I was doing. And um, quickly discovered that a flurry of activity doesn't necessarily produce fruit. And um, within that first six months of ministry at that church in the suburbs of Chicago, um, Dan Spader, the founder of Sun Life, moved out to our area. Family started attending our church. I was introduced to Dan and then the Sun Life team and Sun Life's disciple-making training based on the life of Christ. It it changed my life. It changed my ministry for the last 30 years, built on that foundation. But I would say for me, it wasn't about the training, as great as the training was, but it was about the people of Sun Life. These, um, these leaders who were 10 or 15 years ahead of me who came alongside me and trained me, coached me, mentored me, helped me to see what it looked like to build a ministry based on the model of Jesus. And uh, like I said, uh, that changed the trajectory of um, my ministry, not just my ministry, but ultimately my life over the last 30 years. Uh, I met my wife at that church, um, ended up leaving uh, Illinois after a while and going and uh, being part of a church plant in New Jersey, the dark Northeast, right? <laughs> and was uh, the, the teaching pastor and also started the, the youth ministry there. And uh, then in 1999, stepped out of local church pastoring and uh, joined the team of Sun Life in the Southeast as a, a regional trainer and coach and then started to take Sun Life globally. And in fact... Um, God not only used Sun Life to change the course of our ministry, but in fact, to change the, uh, to change the, the makeup of our family. So I've got a picture of my wife who's actually in the room, in the back. So Jennifer and I have been married for 25 years, uh, six amazing daughters, and uh, that Sun Life training... Um, and uh, living that out and helping others to understand what it looked like to, to, to follow the model of Jesus and be disciple makers, build disciple making ministries, begin disciple making movements, um, uh, took me uh, to Africa where we actually lived there for a while. And the main reason why we lived there, we were adopting at the time our youngest daughter, Mary Faith, uh, in Nairobi, Kenya. And while there, uh, training, coaching, and mentoring uh, pastors, youth pastors, and other, other leaders in Sun Life's training. And that, that began a 10-year journey where um, all throughout Kenya and then spreading all throughout East Africa and raising up nationals to, to own that training, to live it, and then to share it with others to where uh, now in Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Tanzania, Burundi, we've got um, nationals who are leading that disciple-making training movement in each of those countries. And with our, our partner over there, J-Life Africa, uh, the training's happening in 25 countries across that continent. Um, but then also uh, ended up in Haiti and connected with a pastor and started uh, you know, working with students and training leaders there as well. And in the course of that relationship, partnered with him on a lot of other things and after the earthquake in 2010, ended up helping him to build an orphanage. And we had no idea when we were building this orphanage that God would use 
that whole experience to expand our family again. Um, and so uh, we have uh, adopted two more daughters uh, from Haiti. And uh, so like I said, uh, God has used this journey with Jesus, not just to change the course of ministry, um, but our whole life. And uh, so it's an incredible uh, privilege to, um, to be with you guys. Now, how many of you were uh, in our last session where we had Dan Spader, Sun Life's founder? So about half the room were here with us. Uh, and Dan gave a great overview kind of of that that life of Christ and, and his 33, 34 years and what, you know, what that looked like in terms of building a movement, but also those three and a half years with his disciples and what he did year one, year two, year three, year four, to make disciples who could make disciples who could make disciples. Uh, in this session, we're going to look at the first 18 to 21 months of Jesus' public ministry. So beginning with his baptism, all the way up until the point where Jesus steps on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and says to Andrew, Peter, James, and John, hey guys, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, I realize as I say that's like, 18 to 21 months into his ministry, you might be thinking, no, wait a second. I thought that was like right out the gate. I mean, you're reading in Matthew and the very first time the disciples show up there in the gospel of Matthew, um, it's, it's like Matthew chapter four. The first thing you see with them is come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Same thing with the gospel of Mark. Very first chapter where we're introduced to the disciples, it's Jesus walking up to them and saying, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And as Dan shared, we have to take all four of the Gospels and harmonize them together to see that full picture. And so you look at the Gospel of John, the last one written, and he gives us the, 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 the picture where he fills in some of the gaps on those first 18 to 21 months and what was happening there. We call that the ministry foundations phase of Jesus' ministry. How to build a healthy ministry. Now, when we consider Jesus, um, I'm going I'm to do an exercise here, and I'm going to pass out some of these cards, and if you don't want to participate, you can pass the card to someone else because I, we're going we're gonna to see how well we know Jesus. All right? Card, card, anyone? Card? You'll take one. There you go. There you go. Going to fight over it? It's yours. All right, so these cards, everyone who has a card, you're going to need to stand up. And... I want you to come up here and line up across the front holding the card in front of you. So this is very easy. You're, you're, you're like my Vanna Whites, right? Hold up the card. Oh, you gave your card to him. There you go. All right. So we've got 15 of these and the rest of us sitting down still have the hard part where we have to try and organize them in the order in which these events happened in the life of Christ. So, all right, so you're, you're holding them up. I'll, I'll read what they are. So we've got the call of Matthew. We've got the appearance to the 11 in Galilee, Matthew 28. We've got Jesus teaching about the vine and the branches, John 15. We've got the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus sends out the 70, the call of the four. Jesus' baptism by John, the sending of the 12 apostles with great powers. The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, the shortage of workers, Matthew chapter 9. Jesus with a Samaritan woman. The 12 apostles chosen, Jesus' temptation in the desert, the transfiguration, and Jesus' first followers. How are you guys feeling? 
So, so who's, who's got the berth? All right, so, so you're going to come over this way. That'll be, that's a good place to start since we don't have anything about creation in these. So what else? What else? Baptism. Baptism. All right. Baptism head that way. Temptation in the desert. All right. Head that way. You want to send him to the end over there? Since I didn't say the ascension, that's probably a safe bet. Okay. Other thoughts? Other thoughts? What would, what would come after the temptation among these events? There you go. Jesus' first followers. All right. And who were those first followers? Who, who were the first followers? This is John chapter 1, and you've got Andrew and an unnamed disciple. They're disciples of John the Baptist, um, and most likely that unnamed disciple is John the author himself because he never identifies himself in his own gospel. So you've got Andrew, John, runs to, uh, Andrew runs to his brother Peter. Uh, we don't see it, but I would imagine, you know, John probably said something to his brother James, but then the next day you also have Philip and Nathaniel. So the first five or first six followers of Jesus right there. All right. What's next? What's next? I see you all squinting your eyes. I know it's. I would have said before, but you said it was a year and a half later. So. <laughs> Any ideas? The wedding is not, but how about Jesus with the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, right? Now let's think those first four chapters of John. This is all the first 18 to 21 months of Jesus' ministry, right? Uh, You've got uh, these events that we see kind of in sequence where, you know, those first followers of Jesus and where do they go from there? John chapter 2, they go up to Cana, up in the region of Galilee, his first miracle, turning the water into wine. And then we see them come back down, John chapter 3, back down to Jerusalem for the Passover. And Jesus freaks out on the money changers in the temple and flips the tables over. And then he has this conversation with a chief of the Pharisees by the name of first show of Nick at night. Right. And um, then after that, 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 that time of Passover, the end of John chapter three, we see that Jesus takes his followers and they go out into the Judean countryside and he's doing ministry there for a period of time. So that's all still in John chapter three, John chapter four heading now. He's heading back toward his hometown of Nazareth, but he takes a detour and goes through Samaria. And after going through Samaria, then he'll eventually end up in Nazareth, his hometown, where he he has gone to Capernaum before this, but he has not stayed there. He has not set up his base camp there. The reason why he ends up relocating to Capernaum, anyone know the answer? He's rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, right? Luke chapter 4, he makes his declaration about his messiahship, and what do they want to do? They want to throw him off the cliff. And after that, we see him moving. So all of this stuff transpiring during that first 18 to 21 months. (coughs) Before the call of the four. Okay? So we're going to move this over. And, uh, yeah, call Matthew in the right place. Now, this is probably several months later, but Matthew's a, a tax collector there in Capernaum as well. So what are we doing here? 
Where do we want to move them? There we go. So he chooses the 12. So this is after the call of the four, the call of Matthew. Um, those aren't 12 disciples, right? They're 12 apostles. We know uh, from John that Jesus had many followers, many disciples. In fact, when he said, you got to eat my flesh and drink my, my blood, what happened? Yeah. Many chose to bye, bye, bye. Bye, bye, bye. Yep. All right. So the 12 are chosen. And then what happens? We are going to come over here. The shortage of the workers where Jesus, like he's chosen the 12, he's identified them, their leaders who he's beginning to invest in. And now what does he say? He says to them, hey guys, look, the harvest is great. You've been looking at me at doing all this work. You know what? The harvest is great, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more workers. And they're praying and they probably don't realize that they're going to be the answer to their very own prayer. Because immediately after that, we see that Jesus sends them out two by two. Immediately. In fact, this is something that you'll see. There's multiple times in the Gospels where Jesus talks about the harvest. And accompanying the conversation about the harvest is ascending. After this, he talks about it again in Luke chapter 10. Um, But you stay right there. But he talks about it, and then right after talking about it, he sends out the 70. Right? Two by two again. Um, So we've got the the 12, and then we're going to move the feeding of the 5,000 over here. And where's, where's John 15 go? Not quite the back. Well, not the very back. I meant back. But yes, I didn't put the crucifixion and the resurrection in there. Actually, we've got 52 different cards like this, events. And in our full eight-hour training, all of you would have a card. You'd have to try and figure this out. And uh, we would have a lot of fun (laughs) with that. But, uh, you know, so the feeding of the 5,000. One thing that's interesting to note about the feeding of the 5,000. It happens in Bethsaida, which is a Jewish territory, right? And how many basketfuls of food are left over? Twelve. And so there's this idea. It's also interesting that the disciples, they come to Jesus and they tell him, Jesus, send these people home. They're going to be hungry. They're going to faint. Send them. So they have compassion, concern for their fellow Jews. Send them home. And Jesus says, well, what do we have? You know, a few fish, loaves of bread, multiplies it, this miracle, 12 left over, 12 tribes of Israel. It's as if Jesus is saying, I've not only come to minister to these Jews, but to generations and generations of Jews to follow. Now, fast forward, uh, I know all of us in this room know that there's two different feeding miracles, right? The feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the... 4,000. Maybe you've never really clued into this, but the feeding of the 4,000 happens over in the Decapolis, which is a Gentile region. And Jesus, um, before he shows up there, he's already healed the demoniac who had, you know, however many thousand demons in him, 2,000 pigs chased over the edge. And demoniac wants to go back with Jesus over to Capernaum, and Jesus says, no, tell your friends, tell your family what I've done for you. And it says, he went throughout the 10 cities telling everyone what Jesus had done for him. He was Jesus' hype man. So a few months later, when Jesus shows up in the Decapolis, why is there such this massive crowd? The word has gone before Jesus. Jesus is there now. There's this large crowd. They've been with Jesus all day. And Jesus looks to his disciples and he says to them, hey, I'm concerned. We need to feed these people. And his disciples make this excuse. 
well, this is impossible. Eight months wages wouldn't even be enough to feed all of these people. Now let's think about this. Just a few months before this, they've already seen Jesus feed the 5,000. They know that he can do it. Why the excuse? It's because they're Gentiles. And they're like, Jesus, why are we even here? And after this miracle, how many baskets of food are left over? Anyone? Seven. And you cross-reference that with Deuteronomy 7.1. And it speaks of the seven nations that were driven out of the land for Israel to occupy it. So that number seven represented the Gentile people, right? And so it's as if Jesus said, I've not only come for these Gentiles, but for generations and generations of Gentiles to come, which I think probably includes the majority of us. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Jesus had to go to the other side. We just came back from a study tour with 40 pastors, youth pastors, leaders in Israel, studying the life of Christ chronologically on location, site by site. And one of the things that was so interesting that uh, our, our, our tour leader spoke of was the Jordan River that flows into and out of the Sea of Galilee. The, the Jordan River, when you would cross over the Jordan River from the east to the west, then you were now in the promised land, the land that God had promised to the Jews. And amazingly, geographically, when you look at it, across the western shores of the Sea of Galilee, it's lush green, it's life, and it's all lime rock, so it's white. You look across the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee, and it's the Golan Heights, which is volcanic basaltic rock. And so it's like you've got the light and the dark, and Jesus is saying, we are going to the other side. We're going into the darkness with this message to change the world. He's going for us. All right, so, uh, you know, looking at this, I think, you know, when we do this exercise with, you know, a group of pastors, group of leaders, and we'll have, you know, the, I didn't throw the, the, the crucifixion or the resurrection in there, but, you, you know, it's normally in there. But most people say, well, well, I got the beginning and I got the end. But everything in the middle is just kind of jumbled, right? We got Christmas and we got Easter. <laughs> but what about the rest of the life of Christ? And so understanding him as our model for how Jesus lived his life, 1 John 2, 6, we're told to walk as Jesus walked. How did he live his life to produce the results that he produced. That's what we really see in those first 18 to 21 months of his public ministry where he's establishing these foundational priorities that everything is going to be built on so that it can flourish. You guys can just leave those cards there on the ground and uh, grab your seats. So we're going to work through this. What does a healthy ministry look like? Just an amazing question, crazy thought, you know. What would happen if we did something radical and actually looked at Jesus as our model? And so as Dan shared with you in the last session from his 40 plus years of studying the life of Christ, um, uncovering uh, these foundational priorities, six that we have identified. And with them, we've got the acronym. That won't work. Holy Spirit Power. So we've got the Holy Spirit Dependence. We've got prayerful guidance. 
We've got obedient living or obedience to a kingdom agenda, obedient to the Father's agenda. We have word-centered. We have exalting the Father. And we have relationships of love and integrity. Nice band. <laughs> yeah. Can you all read that? Sort of. For those of you who are here, it might be a little easier to read than the dance slides from the last session. Right? So Jesus as our model, the first of those six foundational priorities, Holy Spirit dependence. This idea that every aspect of Jesus' life and ministry was saturated with the Spirit of God. Holy Spirit was active and present in Jesus' life from his conception right through his resurrection. And if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to open up to Luke chapter 4. And I don't think there's any better passage that we can consider for Jesus' dependence upon the Holy Spirit than Luke chapter 4. Right at the beginning of his public ministry, So we know, you know, room full of, you know, pastors, youth pastors, ministry leaders. We know the Trinity, God the Father, God the, God the, right? Jesus, a member of that Trinity, all equally God, yet distinct in, uh, in their role. And yet here, Luke 4.1 says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, though he was fully God, at this time he's also fully man. And the incarnate Christ as fully man, he is choosing to live his life full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. This is going to be how Jesus walks, how he carries out his day-to-day life in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And it continues. He returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. So Jesus is fully God, yet he is full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Spirit. And then, though as God, he could choose well, this is where I'm going to go. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to say. I'm God. I can call my own shots. But no. The incarnate Christ chooses to allow himself, right? Philippians chapter 2, he humbles himself. He becomes obedient. So he's allowing himself to be led by the Spirit of God. He's only going to go where the Spirit tells him to go, to do what the Spirit tells him to do, to say what the Spirit tells him to say. He's allowing his life to be led by the Spirit. He's full of the Spirit. He is led by the Spirit. And now let's jump down. Verse 14. So this is after the temptation experience. And uh, so this is Sometime later, several of those events in John chapter 4 have already transpired. This is at that time when he uh, goes up to Nazareth, his hometown. But it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in what? In the power of the Spirit. So he is full of the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit. And he is walking his life in the power of the Spirit. Of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is his energy. The, how is Jesus going to accomplish what he is going to accomplish? Is it going to be in his own strength? 
No, dependent upon the Holy Spirit, he's going to do it in the Spirit's power. He returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And then what? He shows up there in the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath. He takes the scroll from Isaiah. He pulls it, and he essentially, with this, he is reading his own job description. This is what the next couple years of his earthly ministry is going to look like. And what does he say? The Spirit, this is verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he, he who? The Spirit has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He, the Spirit, has sent me to proclaim freedom for for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The ministry that Jesus is now stepping into, full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, walking in the power of the Spirit. And the ministry, he's going to be anointed by the Spirit and sent by the Spirit to do the ministry that the Father has called him to do. Do you understand what this means for you and for me? I mean, when Jesus says, the things that you've seen me do, even greater things, you'll do. When, Jesus said, when John says, walk as Jesus, how is that possible? It's possible because we have the same Holy Spirit. And if we would live our life full of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, walking in the power of the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, and sent by the Spirit, then what was possible for Jesus becomes possible for us. Anything that the Father would ask us to do is possible because he's given us his Spirit to accomplish it through us. It is entirely possible for you and I to be just like Jesus. It's as if he has crawled inside of our skin and he is living his life through us. Because he is. Because each step that we take in our life, in the spirit, in that step, we are doing exactly what Jesus would do if he were in our shoes. I would say of all of these six priorities that we're going to talk about, and Dan had mentioned this in the the Walking as Jesus Walks study. It's a deeper dive into the life of Christ, uncovering those priorities. And we have a half-day training that looks at these priorities. But for all six of them, I would say this. This first one, it's first for a reason. Because without it, none of the rest of it matters. Without it, All the rest of it, the other five, is just work. That doesn't work. Because it is the Spirit in us and through us who makes the work of God possible. Holy Spirit dependence. We see it, you see it there in Luke 4. I mean, could it be any clearer how it's evidenced in the life of Christ. But you see that, you know, Jesus is conceived by the Spirit. He is sealed by the Spirit. John chapter 6. He rejoiced in the Spirit. Luke chapter 10. He gave commands by the Spirit. Acts chapter 1. He performed miracles by the power of the Spirit. Matthew 12. Luke 4. He was raised by the Spirit. Hebrews 9. Romans 8. Jesus' life was lived on this earth fully dependent upon the Spirit of God. So of the foundational priorities, it's like this is the cornerstone of the foundational priorities. Without this one in place, the others just aren't going to work. So you start there with that Holy Spirit dependence, um, but then you move on and you see prayerful guidance. Prayerful guidance how prayer saturated every aspect of Christ's life and ministry. His ministry was launched with prayer, culminated in prayer, fueled by prayer, focused through prayer, covered in prayer. 
Let me, let me jump back to the, the Holy Spirit and just make this one comment. Um, so Jesus is baptized by his cousin John. Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove, right? So it's go time, right? You're baptized. Let's get going. Let's do ministry. And what does Jesus do? He allows himself to be led by the Spirit into the desert for 40 days, fasting and praying to launch his ministry. Now fast forward to the end after his resurrection. Acts chapter 1, what does Jesus tell his disciples? To wait for who? The Holy Spirit. Let's not get ahead of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we've got visions and we've got dreams and we've got things that we want to do and we get busy with all of this, but is it what God wants? Maybe he wants us to sit in the wilderness for a while and wait on him. So, priority two, prayerful guidance, and just a few thoughts on prayer from Jesus as our model. And you see this in the notes you received there, over 45 sections of scripture covering 30 events that record how Jesus would often slip away to pray. Jesus modeled a life of prayer that empowered his ministry. And you know, for me, I often looked at Jesus and his prayer as something that, well, I mean, he's God. Why would he need to pray? Well, he just prayed to be an example for his disciples, to show them so they would know that they were supposed to do it. And that, let me ask you, When you read through the Gospels and you look at Jesus praying, does it look to you like Jesus didn't need to pray? I mean, there was a hunger. There was a desperation. There was a pattern that was consistent that you would see time and time again where Jesus... He'd pull his disciples together with him and they would get away to pray or he would get away by himself to pray. You know, we tend to think that that the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus praying there, that during that time, that was the only time that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. I doubt it. Jesus, traveling to Jerusalem at least three times a year for the Jewish feasts, the festivals, as was required by Jewish law for all men, 21 years of age and older, right? So Jesus would go, and when he's there, do you think that he would slip away and find a quiet place early in the morning or late in the evening to be alone with his father. In fact, during that final Passion Week, we see it recorded that Jesus went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. It was a pattern, a habit in his life. So much so that how did Judas know where to send the Jewish guards and officials to find Jesus. It was Jesus' customary place where he would go. Of course Jesus is going to be in the garden. He's always there praying. You see this pattern reflected in his life again and again and again. So much was the pattern present in his life that... um, you know, his disciples. I mean, they were with him all the time. Think of all the things they could have asked him to teach them. But the only time it's ever recorded that they said to him, teach us, was when they said what? Teach us to pray. They saw how important prayer was, what power there was in prayer for Jesus, the intimacy that Jesus had with the Father. He modeled it. 
And so... Uh, I'm pretty sure it's in Luke, but I'd have to. You've got it written down? Luke 22, 39 through 44. There you go. So this is a, a, a pattern that Jesus has established in his life. You even see what? Before he appoints the 12, what does he do? Prays. He prays. Spends the night in prayer. In fact, there's a location that we visit. It's called the Eremos Cave. It's right there on the side of the hill that's called the Mount of Beatitudes. Uh, Because after Jesus appoints the 12, we see from the Gospel of Luke that immediately after that, um, he takes the crowd and he begins to teach them. But he spent the whole night praying. So he's got a place in Jerusalem where he goes to regularly to pray. And I believe that, you know, a place like this, a place of solitude, this Eremos cave, um, if he spent the night praying and being alone with his father, something like this, that, that Jesus would have had it again as a regular pattern of his life to carve out that time for intimacy with the father. Um, and, you know, for a long time I thought about it and I thought, well, Jesus was praying for wisdom, so he would know who to choose, right? But then you think, well, wait a second. Jesus has known at this point these guys for like two years. He knows them. I think Jesus probably knew in that moment who he was going to choose. Maybe he was asking for wisdom, maybe. It doesn't tell us what he was praying for. But I think he knew who he was going to choose and he was praying for them by name. A prayer like we see in John chapter 17 where he prays for his disciples. Yeah, and so Jesus knew, okay, I'm putting this mantle of leadership, this expectation on them. The persecution that they are going to face, the hardship that they are going to face because, you know, he's, you know, six months later going to begin telling them he's on his way to Jerusalem to die. Oh, and by the way, you're going to have to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me if you want to be my disciple. So I think he knew what they were facing, praying with them, praying for them, intimacy with the Father. We see that pattern reflected in Jesus' life throughout. And the third priority is obedient living or obedience to a kingdom agenda. So the scriptures make it clear Jesus lived a life of obedience. Dr. Wayne Grudem, he states it this way. He says, Jesus refused to rely upon his divine nature to make obedience easier for him. I mean, think of what the writer of Hebrews says. It says he learned obedience through what he what? suffered. He had to learn to obey. We see this reflected. What did Jesus say? I only do what I see the Father doing. All the way back to Jesus as a 12-year-old there in the temple. And what does it say? Jesus, what? He grew how? Wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and favor with man. How do you grow in favor with God? Each step obedience that Jesus took he was growing he was pleasing the father growing in favor with God so Jesus modeled obedience all the way to the cross Philippians 2 8 being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on the cross Jesus modeled obedience he taught obedience Luke eleven twenty eight. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and <coughs> obey it. And then, I, personally, I think obedience is one of the missing ingredients in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Because what did Jesus say? Make disciples, how? As you are going. So that's, you know, go out there and Engage in relationship and connect with those who are lost and, you know, 
introduce them to me, bring them into the family of God, and then baptizing them, uh, you know, them being solidified in their identity in Christ, their identity in the body of Christ, having that foundation established in their life. So go baptize and then teach. And, and we're really good at teaching in the church, but we're really terrible at teaching to obey. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And as Dan said in our last session, you know, 405 unique commands that you see that Jesus spoke throughout the Gospels. Right? Teaching them to obey. And so, you know, you, you look at, at Jesus, he continually brought forth this message of the kingdom of God. It was a message of, of hope, expectancy, but also of um, expectations. This is what it means to be in the kingdom, right? Look at the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, what? But I tell you. And you see that repeated again and again and again. Here's what you've been told. Now let me straighten you out. Here's what it really looks like to be in the kingdom. And by painting that picture of what living in the kingdom would look like, Jesus is saying, this is the life that you're called to step into. And the way that you do that is through obedience. Obedience. So we've got Holy Spirit dependence, prayerful guidance, and then obedient living. And the fourth of these priorities was the word of God. Being word-centered, central to Christ's life and ministry, Jesus knew the word, used it as he encountered everyday issues of life. And again, I would say for me, for a long time, I kind of had this mindset, well, I mean, Jesus didn't really have to study God's word. I mean, wasn't it like already, you know, hardwired in, pre-programmed? I mean, you know, he's the living word of God. So everything that comes out of his mouth is the word of God. So, but then what does this say? Luke chapter two, he grew in what? Wisdom. How is Jesus growing in wisdom? It was part of, part of that Jewish culture, just the expectation. But in, in, in their education system between the ages of five and ten, they would what? These kids would memorize the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized. And then from ages 10 to 14, they'd start to work on the prophets and digesting those and memorizing more. Just this high value of the word of God. And I know we look at that and we think about it and like, oh, we could never memorize God's word like that. And then I always have fun pointing out, especially with students, well, you know, if we scrolled through all the, the songs on your, your phone um, and just, you know, gave you the title, you, you could probably song after song after song, sing lyric after lyric after lyric. You know and have memorized way more than you realize you know and you have memorized. It's just a matter of what we choose to prioritize. Right? Do we make God's word central? So how do we see this reflected in Jesus' life? He referred to the Old Testament more than 80 times, quoting from over 70 different chapters. Jesus' birth was a fulfillment of God's word. He studied God's word as a child. Um, Luke chapter 2, he found him sitting in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers of the law, listening to them and asking questions. Jesus taught from God's word. Luke 24, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Luke 24, 27. Jesus valued God's word. Matthew 5 says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by enemies disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
And Jesus knew all of God's word. He studied it. He internalized it. He knew it. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And isn't that an indictment on so many of our ministries? We're in error because we don't know the scriptures or the power of God. So the word of God as a priority for Jesus, something uh, fun that, that I did. Um, my, uh, one of my spiritual mentors about two years ago now, he challenged me, he said, hey, Doug, just for accountability each day, let's text each other what God taught us that day in his word. I'm like, every day? It's like, yeah. I'm like, are you like doing this for other people or are you going to create a whole new text just for me? And he's like, well, you know, I do this with, with, with some other people who I'm, I'm mentoring and discipling, but yeah, let's do this together. And so we began every day texting each other what, you know, and it kind of became instead of, you know, writing in a journal, I'm, I'm texting, you know, writing the journal there on my phone, what God had taught me in his word. And then I began to think, well, you know, I'm, I'm in this accountability group with these guys. Maybe it'd be an encouragement to them. Let me you know, put them in a group and send them the group text. And then our, our Sun Life team, our staff, I said, well, you know, maybe it'd be an encouragement for them. I'm not expecting them to, you know, reciprocate and send me every day, but, you know, I'll, I'll send that to them. And uh, then the Sun Life board, I'm like, I should, I should send this to our board. And then I had some other ministry friends who were saying, oh, you're doing that? That's cool. And all these people, and, and then it hit me about two months into this. I'm like, I'm sending this text you know, kind of this encouragement, you know, what God is teaching me through his word. All these people, and I'm not even sending it to my daughters. What's wrong with me? <laughs> so that day I created a, a text group with, with my girls, and I sent them the text. And that very first day, my, um, my oldest, she texted me back from college, and she said, Daddy, I love that you do this, right? And just that, that accountability, but also that reminder each day, to be in God's word and to encourage one another with God's word and to share in God's word together. And um, it's just been, been fun to see what, what God has done with that. So fifth priority is exalting the Father. Exalting the Father. And uh, worship for Jesus, it was more than singing or synagogue attendance was his way of life, his way of relating to the Father, leading his followers, his way of creating a revolutionary movement. Uh, Worship was life. Living life as a living sacrifice offered to God, right, as worship. Uh, In in fact, I mean, so often when we use the word worship, we're talking about, you know, that segmented period of the week, you know, we're going to worship God, you know, that one hour, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Or it's not even that whole hour. It's just the part of that hour that we're what? That we're singing. And that's worship. And it's interesting that you can read through all four Gospels and how many times do you think you find Jesus singing? After the Last Supper, uh, from the upper room, it says that they sang a hymn together. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus didn't sing. Sure, it was part of his regular ritual to, to sing through the Psalms and to pray through them. But worship for Jesus is so much more than just singing. It's amazing, you know, Jesus referred to God as his, his favorite name for, for God, his Father. Over 180 times in the Gospels. Jesus exalted the Father from his first breath until his last. He was consumed with glorifying the Father. You see him continually, that word glory or glorify, again and again and again, falling from Jesus' lips. I have brought the Father glory. Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. You see that phrase several times, even there in John chapter 15, when G- uh, John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying. So just living a life that exalts the Father, that brings the Father glory in every way. 
And then the sixth of these foundational priorities was relationships of love and integrity. Jesus modeled intentional, loving relationships throughout his entire life. Essence of the incarnation underscores this truth. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. It'll be Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God drew near. Um, We see, you know, just the priority of relationships for Jesus, uh, for him. Disciple making wasn't a program. Disciple-making was relationships. You look at uh, Mark chapter 3 where he appoints the 12 and it says he called to to him those he wanted. And he appointed them as apostles, what? That they might be with him. Wanted to go deeper in relationship. Jesus spent a significant amount of time with his disciples, particularly the 12. One day, it it just hit me, I began looking at it the the last 15 months of the life of Christ, where essentially the 12 are with him full time, full on. You don't really see any events transpiring in there, and by the way, 80% of what we see in the four Gospels happens in those last 15 months. 80%. Um, and you see Jesus with them constantly. And, you know, they weren't taking buses, trains, automobiles. I don't even know that they were really riding camels, they were walking. And the the journey just from Nazareth to Capernaum, there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, it's like a three or four day walk. From Jerusalem, walking up along the Jordan River and cutting over to the Sea of Galilee, it would take you a full week to make that 70 mile walk. Think of all the time that Jesus spent with them on the road, sharing meals together, laughing together. Uh, You know, I'm sure there are lots of times, maybe they had people they knew along the way and they'd stay in their homes. And I'm sure there were times where they were sleeping under the stars. The conversations they had as they were looking up into the heavens. And it just hit me. You know, I think Jesus spent more time with the 12 in those 15 months, say in the last year of his public ministry, he spent more time with the 12 than I think any one of us in this room spends with anyone in our life unless we are the mother of a preschooler. I mean, he was with them continually. Disciple-making is relationships. You see, the the priority of relationships reflected the people who Jesus loved. Um, Throughout the Gospels, we see him interacting and demonstrating love. He loved the leper. He loved the widow. He loved the drunkards and the sinners. He loved the disenfranchised. He loved the sexually immoral. He loved the children. He loved the poor. He loved the wealthy and powerful. He loved the physically handicapped. He loved the people who would reject him. He loved the criminal. He loved the people who would kill him. Father, forgive them. Jesus lived a life of love. So we see these six foundational priorities that are kind of set in motion during those initial 18 to 21 months of his public ministry. They don't end at 21 months. They continue on. They are the foundation that is built upon and they continue through the whole time. And let's think about it this way. I said the first of those, Holy Spirit dependence, that's like the cornerstone. That's an anchor. You've got to start with that. Without that, all the rest of this is just work that doesn't work. So you're you're dependent upon the Holy Spirit. How ultimately... Are we going to reflect our dependence upon the Holy Spirit? 
no better way to reflect our dependence upon the Holy Spirit than on our knees in prayer, prayerful guidance. And when we're dependent upon the Holy Spirit and we're being guided prayerfully, the Spirit of God is going to lead us and ask us to do some things and what needs to happen. We need to be obedient, a life of obedience. Now, how is God going to to direct that obedience and establish the, the parameters for the life that we're to live? It's his word. And when we are obedient to his word, what does our life look like? Our life then is one that's lived in such a way that it is exalting the Father in every way. And ultimately, how does all of that play out? Where does the rubber meet the road? The rubber meets the road in our relationships. And it's going to be reflected in the way that we relate to the lost, that we relate to believers, the way that we love God and love people, that we that we live out the great commandment and the great commission. It's about love. Holy Spirit, it's going to lead us on our knees in prayer. Prayer is going to require obedience. Obedience is guided by the the word, word word-centered. When that happens, we're exalting the Father. And then we have relationships of love and integrity. Foundational priorities of Jesus. So as we look at those six foundational priorities, what I would say to each of us is, I mean, just do the quick mental checklist. Are these my own priorities? Am I seeing these in place in my life? Because if I want to build a healthy ministry that makes disciples who makes disciples, then that will never happen if I don't have this. In fact, what? You can look to Acts chapter 2. And what we typically look at as the picture of a healthy church, right? Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. And I would say this. You can read through that and you will find all six of these foundational priorities right there in Acts chapter 2. And what was the result of that? And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see, healthy things can't help but grow. We try and do disciple-making, winning the lost and having disciple-making ministries, but we aren't healthy ourselves and we don't have that foundation of health in our ministries. It's a lot of work that doesn't work. Any questions? I've just been going a mile a minute. That's good. Yeah. You shared a beautiful nugget uh, when you got the word centered about how to uh, apply that practically into everyday living. I, I loved the idea of just that text message idea. Um, <coughs> would you share with us some other practical ways that you've seen this acronym played out? Um, because I know that we hear it and, and we're seeing it and it makes sense, but how does it work? Like, how does it actually get applied to ministry? That's a great question. And um, I would, I'll give another quick example in regards uh, to prayer, something that as I was, um, you know, sending out that text with a, a word and I have like I think eight different text groups now that I send that out to. And so there's some interaction around that and it's fun. But um, uh, probably maybe at the beginning of this year, it kind of hit me. You know, we're interacting around God's word, but man, wouldn't it be great if, if we were praying for one another? And so now at the beginning, every Monday, in addition to that one text, I'll send out a follow-up text that same morning, um, hey, how can I pray for you this week? And I'll give two or three things from me, and then there are, there are texts flying around, and everyone in, in those different text group is seeing that, and we're interacting, and then sharing you know, reports on, on what happened with that, or asking more questions, and, and just interacting so that, I mean, that's also a reflection, you could say, of the, the relationships of love and integrity, the fact that we're caring for one another, praying for one another. Just a simple thing that has been done uh, in that regard. So 
I mean, to, to dive into all of them, you know, in our, in our half day training, you know, there's a, a lot, a lot more than, and also a lot of conversation around the tables with the others about, okay, what does this look like in my life? What is this looking like in my ministry? Um, what are my next steps? What am I going to do from here? What's my plan? And almost, almost using that, uh, training, we would say the best way to use it is not in a four hour seminar, but in like a weekend team building retreat. And you talk through each of those six and then you spend some time fleshing it out and, you know, strategizing and praying over it and pouring into each other. And, you know, so, um, but, and I would say looking at, now, looking, I've got to teach him the first steps that I do without him seeing. Yeah. But we do the word, the exalting, and the relationship together. And I would say, you know, we can look at this personally and what we're doing personally, but then also as our ministry, how do we build these priorities? And from a, a leader's perspective, we have to model it first. Mm-hmm. These have to be our own priorities. But then how do we help to get the whole ministry's arms around it? What are What are some of those practical things that we can, you know, and uh, I, I know some, uh, some ministries that, you know, have, have taken this and they'll use this over six months and they'll take one priority each month and they'll teach on it and, you know, build small groups around it and, you know, organize some experiences around each of them to help cement it in. Um, so, you know, just different things creatively to... Doug, back to the manual and a retreat setting. So, uh, these two Sun Life's trainings, the four-chair discipling seminar uh, that kind of goes along with the four-chair discipling book and the six foundational priorities that kind of goes with the walking as Jesus walks study, um, you have to go through that training first before you can get certified uh, by Sun Life to train that. And then we say train it in your own ministry first to establish those priorities so that your ministry is one that is, you know, a disciple-making focused ministry. And then as other ministries around you, friends are looking, they're like, wow, what's going on with your ministry? There's so much great stuff. And then, you know, when you have that credibility, then to share it with them. That is an encouragement. And also just humbly saying, you know, for Dan, after 40 years of intently studying the life of Christ, um, for me, you know, last 30 years, um, we don't have Jesus down. You study Jesus yourself. What do you see? Is there, is there another priority as you study the life of Christ that you see? Um, so that's, that's our subtle encouragement. <laughs> Dive deeper into Jesus on your own. It, it, you know, don't just take our word for it. Study Jesus yourself. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. That message was from the Sun Life track called Transforming the Culture of Youth Ministry at the National Disciple Making Forum. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources like this podcast at discipleship.org. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.